Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly media analysis and current events critique program. Uh, my name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be doing a solo program this afternoon, this evening rather, as uh, Dick Whaley enjoys uh, a cultural highlight of the great American Midwest. Uh, myself having returned from a cultural trip over the weekend uh, to enjoy a play in Stratford, Ontario. So it's a good time of year to take yourself out to a show or a play or a concert or to a film at the top of the park, whatever strikes your fancy. Well, I'm going to uh, devote most of the program today to uh, giving listeners a chance to enjoy some of the abundance of material uh, presented to readers in Robert Fisk's recent book, The Great War for Civilization, uh, which I'll get to in a moment. But I do have a few quick items that I want to dispense with uh, at the beginning of the program here. No real brain damage awards, per se, to uh, distribute this week. We'll uh, wait till next week when Mr. Whaley returns. Uh, but I did want to talk about this last week, and we ran out of time. There's been a number of uh, recent articles of late uh, calling attention to the fact that it now costs more than one penny to make a penny. And uh, two different groups, one, Americans for Common Sense, which is fighting to keep the, the coin in circulation, and another group entitled Citizens for Retiring the Penny have uh, drawn up lines and sides here. But... Uh, just going to throw in my own two cents on the matter because it's something that uh, as somebody who's worked in retail for a number of years, uh, I've got some observations on this, as I'm sure have many of us. But uh, this is just quickly here. Uh, there are better reasons to get rid of the penny than the fact that it takes more than a cent to manufacture a cent. I mean, uh, the mint, the U.S. mint, is not in the business of making money as a per profit uh, venture. So uh, coins are, of course, uh, an important part of just the sheer basic level of uh, a nation's uh, culture and identity. This is the currency with which we engage in the transactions of our lives. So yes, it's important that our government manufactures uh, coinage for us to utilize, uh, regardless of uh, whether or not it costs more than the actual face value of the uh, coin in question. Um but there really are some uh, good reasons to get rid of the penny and, furthermore, to get rid of the $1 bill. Now, I don't have the statistics in front of me on this, but pennies, of course, being a hard material coin, uh, last a good long time. Many of us have jars and barrels and even bathtubs filled with them in uh, our homes and garages and uh, who knows how many are in grandma's attic. So, on one hand, you might never even really need to make pennies again uh, if people would put the pennies that they have locked up in their penny jars back into circulation. Uh, we probably would never need to make more pennies. But the fact that we can uh, float through with so many of them locked up in storage jars, as Terry Jones might insist that I utter, um, I think is pretty good testimony to the fact that the penny is a useless coin. It's the $1 bill of monopoly. And uh, for those who would complain that, oh, if we got rid of the penny, it would, in fact, be a sort of a roundup price tax to knock everything up to, uh, you know, an even five cent. Well, you know, uh, prices rise and, and fall all the time. And we, we buy into the artificial concept of nine ninety nine, which, of course, with tax is going to involve pennies. So pricing structures could be arranged so that uh, taxes came out to even uh, integers there, uh, if I'm using that 
mathematical term correctly, being a lit major. I don't know. But uh, that's a moot point. Anyway, if we also stop manufacturing the $1 bill, we could free up that coin slot in the uh, cash register drawer for the dollar coin, which, of course, as a coin, is much more durable and ultimately cheaper for the government to manufacture because it lasts longer. The, the paper dollar is a very costly uh, venture, and let's face it, it's pretty useless. It's about as useless as the penny since the uh, things, you know, so many vending machines, you're paying almost a dollar for things in there anyway, or more. So dollar coins uh, should be the way to go. And for those, lastly, who would be sad to see the penny go for the uh, number of expressions that the English language utilizes that involve the penny as a concept, a penny saved, a penny earned, um, throw in your two cents, you know, penny for your thoughts. These are all so, you know, well ensconced in the you know, everyday parlance of English that I, I think that uh, for the penny to evaporate, these terms would still remain. After all, uh, most of us have never uh, made hay, uh, but we still know what that means to make hay while the sun shines. So um, these linguistic uh, expressions uh, will not be threatened by the elimination of the penny or the dollar bill. So... That's what I say on the matter. Those are my two cents, as I said. Uh, also, quickly, um, interesting to see that the United Nations has stepped in with food relief for uh, Palestinians who, of course, have not received paychecks for four months and sometimes more than four months. Uh, this is pretty remarkable to see that it has come to this. Um, of course, there are discussions of national pride and so forth in the articles that uh, describe this in today's papers. But I think it's a kind of an international disgrace that uh, entire well, collective punishment is what we're talking about here because of past practices of the Hamas uh, group. Uh, the fact that, well, advocates of democracy are, are really being punished here collectively for... Um, you know, activities of Hamas. Uh, certainly, as has been mentioned on this program, uh, the Likud party uh, has its own terrorist history, and yet there was no international boycott of any elections that they won. So uh, things are more complex uh, than meet the eye, and uh, it's sad to see that it took United Nations food relief to, to get in there and make nutrition available to uh, people being punished for how they and others voted. Uh, lastly, before we get into the uh, Robert Fisk uh, book, um, today's uh, front, below the fold on the front page of today's Financial Times, we see a rather startling headline. I don't know how this will play out in the American papers. Europeans see U.S. as threat to global security, says Poll. A poll conducted over three days from June 6th questioned a representative sample of 5,000 people in the U.K., France, Germany, Italy, and Spain on a range of issues. Some 36% identified the U.S. as the greatest threat to global stability, while 30% named Iran and 18% selected China. So there you go. We are <laughs> leading uh, the European poll in uh, who is the most uh, threatening nation. We've become everything we've ever claimed to hate. But what do you expect when your government not only practices, but openly defends torture as an acceptable uh, interrogation device? Well, 
a couple of months ago, Robert Fisk, the uh, outstanding uh, journalist who has covered the Middle East and lived in the Middle East, uh, all the, going all the way back to the 1980s, uh, his very famous book, Pity the Nation, about the Lebanese Civil War of the 70s and 80s, uh, I think catapulted him to uh, widest acclaim. He still, of course, writes for a number of publications, most frequently The Guardian, and has reported for uh, radio, CBC Radio included, as well as the BBC over the years. Uh, a recent book uh, that he's issued called The Great War for Civilization is, I think, a very important book for a number of reasons. First of all, as a, uh, a journalist who not only speaks the language but has lived in the region, he uh, speaks with a great deal of authority and immediacy. He's been to these places. He's talked to these people. He's one of two people uh, to have interviewed Osama bin Laden in the past, uh, I'm not sure how many years. Uh, he's one of the last people to interview Osama bin Laden. So he is uh, somebody who moves in the circles and, and throughout the dangerous region that the Middle East has become. Uh, the book takes its title from a medal which his father received as a British soldier in World War One. That's what that war was in, was called at that time in England, the Great War, or uh, is the full title here on the medal, the Great War for Civilization. This book is probably going to intimidate more readers than it will welcome, because including the notes in the back, we're ta and a chronology as well. I won't belabor the point by page. Uh, numbering the index, but we're talking about a, a text which is 1,071 pages long. Uh, the chapters are rather lengthy, but detailed in a way that uh, television news and most you know, print media, particularly daily newspapers, are not able to afford uh, the kind of depth um, towards the two great plagues of mainstream media news presentation is corporate ownership, one, and two, concision. Uh, the need, particularly on TV, to whittle uh, complex and important arguments or elements of a political story down to things which can be expressed in 20 to 30 seconds really means that most Americans are woefully uninformed unless they take it upon themselves to either go to these places or do the research and look at materials written by people who have been to these places. Robert Fisk's writing is, I think, very crisp and entertaining. Uh, there is kind of an adventure element to this book as well, because, you know, here he is in Afghanistan, and here he is in Iran, and, you know, there are often bomb threats and danger and explosions and, uh, you know, U.S. missile strikes uh, with which he has to deal. I want to read uh, as much as I can of a passage from what is the second chapter of this text, and I will kind of briefly set the context for it here. The chapter is entitled, They Shoot Russians. And it's about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which of course occurred in the late uh, 70s, and was pretty much planned to prop up a uh, Russian puppet government, which was being uh, attacked. Uh, and of course, uh, there's a response uh, to this Russian invasion by a U.S. Uh, 
structured group and supported group of Mujahideen, uh, religious fundamentalist uh, freedom fighters, as Reagan called them. And what ends up happening, interestingly enough, is while uh, Robert Fisk is in Afghanistan, he ends up finding the greatest safety uh, for a time, traveling with uh, the the Russian troops. Uh, now, this is not quite the same as being embedded with the troops, um, as is the case with recent wars in the Mideast with uh, mainstream media journalists in this country. But he begins this chapter, They Shoot Russians, interestingly, by uh, looking at a, a book that his father received um, as a young lad. Um, back in the 19 teens, 1914 is when the book was published. The book is entitled Tom Graham, V.C., A Tale of the Afghan War. And I'll begin to read a little bit here. We're going to listen to a little Brian Eno in the background so that the, uh, you know, monotony of a single voice coming at you reading text is not going to sound overly like NPR. So any second now we'll hear some of uh, Brian Eno's Neroli CD come up behind me, thanks to Engineer Chaz. Uh, Robert Fisk writes that this story, uh, Tom Graham, a tale of the Afghan war, is typical of my father's generation, a rip-roaring racist story of British heroism and Muslim savagery. But reading it, I was struck by some remarkable parallels between his father and the character, the Tom Graham character, who vows before going off to war that he will lead a pure, clean, and upright life. Well... <laughs> From uh, to continuing to discuss this text, uh, basically propaganda for British schoolboys, uh, again from Robert Fisk, quote, From villains to flies and niggers in 100 pages, it's not difficult to see how easily my father's world of, quote, pure, clean, and upright Britons bestialized its enemies. Though there are a few references to the boldness of Afghan tribesmen and just one to their courage, no attempt is made to explain their actions. They are evil, hate-filled, anxious to prove their Muslim faith by, quote, cutting pieces out of the unfortunate Britisher. Close quote. The notion that Afghans do not want foreigners invading and occupying their country simply does not exist in the story. Well, of course, uh, this is what the Russians were themselves defined, and the parallels between the Russian experience in Afghanistan and our own, that's an ongoing war in which the U.S. is embroiled. It's kind of uh, receiving less attention than Iraq, but uh, certainly the parallels are worthy of attention. Uh, Fisk notes that uh, 60,000 Soviet troops were employed in Afghanistan, and after a few years, the Russian losses uh, had totaled to 14,263 deaths, 49,985 wounded. I'm not sure uh, how many years that uh, represents, but uh, we're going to go now to a series of pages from this chapter, They Shoot Russians, by Robert Fisk in his book, The Great War for Civilization. Yet it was all too easy to turn the Soviet occupation into a one-dimensional drama of brutal Russian invaders and plucky Afghan guerrillas, a kind of flip-side version of the fictional Tom Graham's Second Afghan War. A succession of pro-Soviet dictators had ruled Afghanistan with cruelty, with socialist cant and pious economic plans, but also through tribal alliances. The Pathans and the Hazaras, who were Shia Muslims, and the Tajiks and Gilzais and the Durranis, and the Uzbeks could be manipulated by the government in Kabul. 
It could bestow power on a leader prepared to control his town on behalf of the communist authorities, but could withhold funds and support from anyone who did not. Prison torture and execution were not the only way to ensure political compliance. But among the tribes deep within the deserts and valleys of Afghanistan, the same communist governments have been trying to cajole and then force upon these rural societies a modern educational system in which girls as well as boys would go to school, and which young women did not have to wear the veil, in which science and literature would be taught alongside Islam. Twenty-one years later, an American president would ostentatiously claim that these were among his own objectives in Afghanistan. And I remember one excursion out of Jalalabad in those early days of the Soviet invasion. I had heard that a schoolhouse had been burned down in a village 25 kilometers from the city and set off in an exhaust-fuming Russian-built taxi to find out if this was true. It was, but there was much worse. Besides the gutted school, there hung from a tree a piece of blackened meat twisting gently in the breeze. One of the villagers, urging my driver to take me from the village, told us that this was all that was left of the headmaster. They had also hanged and burned his schoolteacher wife. The couple's sin? To comply with government rules that girls and boys should be taught in the same classroom. And what about those Pakistanis and Egyptians and Saudis who were, according to Karmal, supporting the terrorists? Even in Jalalabad, I heard that Arabs had been seen in the countryside outside the city. Although typical of our innocence at that time, I regarded these stories as untrue. How could Egyptians and Saudis have found their way here? And why Saudis? But when I heard my colleagues, especially American journalists, referring to the resistance as freedom fighters, I felt something going astray. Guerrillas, maybe. Even fighters. But freedom fighters? What kind of freedom were they planning to bestow upon Afghanistan? Of their bravery, there was no doubt, and within three weeks of the Soviet invasion came the first signs of a unified Muslim political opposition to the Karmal government and its Russian supporters. The few diplomats left in Kabul called them night letters. Crudely printed on cheap paper, the declarations and manifestos were thrown into embassy compounds and pushed between consular fences during the hours of curfew, their message usually surmounted by a drawing of the Koran. The most recent of them, and it was now mid-January of 1980, purported to come from the United Muslim Warriors of Afghanistan and bore the badge of the Islamic Afghan Front, one of four groups which had been fighting in the south of the country. From the open pages of the Quran, there sprouted three rifles. The letter denounced the regime for inhuman crimes and condemned Soviet troops in the country for treating Afghans like slaves. Muslims, it said, will not give up fighting or guerrilla attacks until our last breath. The proud and aggressive troops of the Russian power have no idea of the rights and human dignity of the people of Afghanistan. The letter predicted the death of Karmal and three of his cabinet ministers, referring to the president as Kargal, a play on words in Persian which means thief of work. The first man to be condemned was Asadullah Sarwari, a member of the Afghan Presidium who was Tarakai's secret police chief, widely credited with ordering the torture of thousands of Taraki's opponents. Others on the death list included Shah Jan Mozdoyar, a former interior minister who was now Karmal's transport minister. Let's skip a paragraph here to now page 60. Still, Gavan and I ventured out most days with Steve, Joff, Mike, and the faithful Mr. Samadali, the driver. We were halfway up the Salang Pass, 130 kilometers north of Kabul on 12 January, when our car skidded on the ice and a young Russian paratrooper from the 105th Airborne Division ran down the road, waving his automatic rifle at us and shouting in Russian. He had been wounded in the right hand and blood was seeping from the bullet hole through the makeshift bandage and staining the sleeve of his battle dress. He was only a teenager, with fair hair and blue eyes and a face that showed fear. 
He had clearly never before been under fire. Besides us, a Soviet army transport lorry, its rear section blown to pieces by a mine, lay upended in a ditch. There were two tracked armored carriers just up the road, and a Russian paratroop captain ran towards us to join his colleague. Who are you? he asked in English. He was dark-haired and tired, dressed in a crumpled tunic, a hammer and sickle buckle on his belt. We told him we were correspondents, but the younger soldier was too absorbed with the pain from his wound. He reapplied the safety catch on his rifle, then lifted up his hand for our inspection. He raised it with difficulty and pointed to a snow-covered mountain above us where a Russian military helicopter was slowly circling the peak. They shoot Russians, he said. He was incredulous. No one knew how many Russians the guerrillas had shot, although a villager for a mile further south insisted with undisguised relish that his compatriots had killed hundreds. But the ambush had been carefully planned. The mine had exploded at the same time as a charge had blown up beneath a bridge on the main highway. So for almost 24 hours, half of a Russian convoy en route to Kabul from the Soviet frontier was marooned in the snow at an altitude of more than 7,000 feet. Russian engineers had made temporary repairs, and we watched as the Soviet tracks made their way down from the mountains, slithering on the slush and packed ice. 156 tracked armored vehicles, eight-wheel personnel characters, and 300 lorry loads of petrol, ammunition, food, and tents. The drivers looked exhausted. The irony, of course, was that the Russians had built this paved highway through the 11,900-foot pass. That night, the U.S. State Department com- uh, claimed that 1,200 Russian soldiers had been killed. It seemed an exaggeration, but the bloody-minded villager might have been right about the hundreds dead, a very limited contingent of attackers indeed. Karmal's government held a day of mourning for those killed by the butcher Amin. The British embassy even lowered its flag to half-mast. But only a few hundred people turned up at the yellow-painted Polakeshti Mosque to pray for their souls, and they were for the most part well-dressed PDP functionaries. Four young men who arrived at the mosque in northern Kabul and attempted to avoid the signing ceremony were reminded of their party duties by a soldier with a bayonet fixed to his rifle. They signed the book. The rest of Kabul maintained the uneasy tenor of its new life. The bazaars were open as usual, and the street sellers with their sweetmeats and oils confined continued to trade beside the ice-covered Kabul River. In the old city, a western television crew was stoned by a crowd after being mistaken for Russians. Kabul had an almost bored air of normality that winter as it sat in its icy basin in the mountains, its wood smoke drifting up to the pale blue sky. The first thing all of us noticed in the sky was an army of kites, large box kites, triangular and rectangular kites with small and small paper affairs, painted in blues and reds and often illustrated with large and friendly human eye with a large and friendly human eye. No one seemed to know why the Afghans were so obsessed with kites, although there was a poetic quality to the way in which the children, doll-like creatures with narrow Chinese features, swaddled in coats and embroidered capes, watched their kites hanging in the frozen air, those great paper eyes with their long eyelashes floating towards the mountains. Gavin and I once asked... Gavin's his photographer. Gavin and I once asked Mr. Samadali to take us to the zoo. Cobble had a zoo... Inside the gate, a rusting sign marked vultures led to some of the nastiest birds on earth, skeletal rather than scrawny. Past the hog pit, a trek through deep snow brought us to the polar bear cages. But the cage doors were open and the bears were missing. Even more disquieting was the silent group of turbaned men who followed us around the zebra park, apparently under the illusion we were Russians. It must have been the only zoo in the world where the visitors were potentially more dangerous than the animals. 
We even managed to find Afghanistan's only railway locomotive, a big early 20th century steam engine brought by King Amanullah from a German manufacturer. It's that forlorn and rusting near a ruined palace, its pistons congealed together and guarded by policemen who snatched at our cameras when we tried to take a picture of this old loco. A doubly absurd event, since there is not a single active railway line in all of Afghanistan. Perhaps by way of compensation, the truck drivers of Afghanistan had turned their lorries into masterpieces of Afghan pop art, every square inch of bodywork covered in paintings and multicolored designs. Afghan lorry art possessed a history all its own, which took off when metal sheeting was added to the woodwork of long-distance trucks. The panels were turned into canvases by artists in Kabul and later in Kandahar. Lorry owners paid large sums to these painters. The more intricate the decoration, the more honored the owner became. And the art was copied from Christmas cards, calendars, comics, and mosques. Tarzan and the horse of Imam Ali could be seen side by side with parrots, mountains, helicopters, and flowers. Three-paneled railboards on Bedford trucks provided perfect triptychs. A French author once asked a lorry owner why he painted his coachwork and received the reply that, quote, It is a garden, for the road is long. Inevitably, Karmal tried to appease the Mujahideen, seeking a ceasefire in rural areas through a series of secret meetings between government mediators and tribal leaders in Peshawar. A PDP statement announced that it would, quote, begin friendly negotiations with national democratic progressives and Islamic circles and organizations, close quote. This approach, intriguing though doomed, was accompanied by a desperate effort on the part of the government to persuade itself that it was acquiring international legitimacy. Kabul newspapers carried the scarcely surprising news that favorable reactions to the local regime had come from Syria, Kampuchea, and India, as well as the Soviet Union and its East European satellites. In a long letter to Ayatollah Khomeini, whose Islamic revolution in Iran the previous year had so frightened the Soviets, Karmal criticized the adverse Iranian response to his coup. It had been condemned by Iranian religious leaders and sought to assure the Ayatollah that the murder of Muslim tribesmen in Afghanistan had been brought to an end with Amin's overthrow. Quote, My government will never allow anybody to use our soil as a base against the Islamic revolution in Iran and against the interest of the fraternal, the fraternal Iranian people, he wrote. We expect our Iranian brothers to take an identical stance. Iran, needless to say, was in no mood to comply. Within days of the Soviet invasion, the foreign ministry in Tehran had stated that, quote, Afghanistan is a Muslim country, and the military intervention of the government of the Soviet Union in the neighboring country of our co-religionists is considered a hostile measure against all the Muslims of the world, close quote. Within months, and aware that the United States was sending aid to the guerrillas, Iran would be planning its own military assistance program for the insurgents. By July, Sadek uh, Gotspede, the Iranian foreign minister, was telling me that he hoped his country would give weapons to the rebels if the Soviet Union did not withdraw its army. Quote, some proposal to this effect has been given to the Revolutionary Council, he told me in Tehran. Just as we were against the American military intervention in Vietnam, we think exactly the same way about the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union claims that they have come to Afghanistan at the request of the Afghan government. The Americans were in Vietnam at the request of the Vietnamese government. Close quote. But at this stage, Karmal had more pressing, pressing problems than Iran. Desperate to maintain the loyalty of the Afghan army, we heard reports that only 60% of the force was now following orders. Karmal even made an appeal to their patriotism, promising increased attention to their material needs. 
These heroic officers, patriotic cadets, and valiant soldiers were urged to defend the freedom, honor, and security of your people with high hopes for a bright future. Those are all in quotes. Government language there. Material needs clearly meant back pay. The fact that such an appeal had to be made at all said much about the low morale of the Afghan army. No sooner had he tried to appease his soldiers than Karmal turned the, to the Islamists, who had for so long opposed the communist regimes in Kabul. He announced that he would change the Afghan flag to reintroduce the uh, green, the color of Islam, so rashly deleted from the national banner by Taraki, to the fury of the clergy. At the same time, and Karmal had an almost unique ability to destroy each new political initiative with an unpopular countermeasure, he warned that his government would treat, quote, terrorists, gangsters, murderers, and highwaymen with revolutionary decisiveness, close quote. For terrorists, read guerrillas or, as President Ronald Reagan would call them in years to come, freedom fighters. Terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. In the Middle East, in the entire Muslim world, this word would become a plague, a meaningless punctuation mark in all our lives, a full stop erected to finish all discussion of injustice constructed as a wall by Russians, Americans, Israelis, British, Pakistanis, Saudis, Turks, to shut us up. Who would ever say a word in favor of terrorists? What cause could justify terror? So our enemies are always terrorists. In the 17th century, governments used heretic in much the same way, to end all dialogue, to prescribe obedience. Karmal's policy was simple. You are either with us or against us. For decades I have listened to this dangerous equation, uttered by capitalist and communist, presidents and prime ministers, generals and intelligence officers, and of course, newspaper editors. That's about all the time we've got. I hope from my 15-16 minute uh, reading of uh, this chapter uh, from Robert Fisk's The Great War for Civilization, uh, some listeners might be encouraged to seek this book out, either at the library pick up a copy. It's likely to find its way into paperback soon, although I'm sure it didn't sell in as great a quantities as it deserved to, and uh, hardcover, remainder, or cutout copies may eventually become available. But uh, I really strongly recommend this uh, book. Uh, this man's work is uh, very important for those of us who uh, speak the English language and who seek to better understand uh, areas of the world in which our government is perpetrating a number of rather bizarre and often contradictory actions. Um, this has been Gray Matters for this week. I'd like to thank Chaz for engineering, Brian Eno for providing the background music, uh, Dick Whaley will return next week. Stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling, and listen to WCBN for all your listening pleasures. This is war to extermination. Fight cell by cell through bodies and mind screens of the earth. Souls rotten from the orgasm drug. Flesh shuddering from the ovens. Prisoners of the earth come out. Storm the studio. Burnt metal smell of interplanetary war in the raw noon streets. Swept by screaming glass blizzards of enemy flak. Shift lingles, free doorways, cut word lines, photo falling, word falling, breakthrough in gray room, towers, open fire. Citizen, you are listening to WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. Tilt, blast, pound, stab, strap, kill. Pilot K-9, you are cut off. Back, return to base immediately. 
Right, music beam, back to base. Stay out of that time, Flack. All pilots.